Darkcast Network. Out of the shadows comes the best of indie podcasts. The murders of Haley Kiffer and Nicholas Brady occurred on Thanksgiving Day in 2012, when Haley, who was 18, with her cousin Nicholas at 17, broke into the home of 64-year-old Byron David Smith in Little Falls, Minnesota. Smith shot the teens separately and 10 minutes apart as they entered the basement where he was, later stating to police he was worried about them being armed. The events that transpired are considered torture, as they were taunted and treated as not human. Tonight, in light of the holiday, we'll have this story to listen to, as well as remember the victims, and as we travel with our loved ones to spend time with this holiday season, but also be thankful for that we, everyone listening to this, are alive to enjoy this time that is given to us. My name is DJ, and this is the Mythical True Crime Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Season 3 premiere of Mythical True Crime Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the Darkcast Network of Indie Podcasters content, as well as my own. A couple of announcements to make. I have two new subscribers, William P. and Tiger Eye. Thank you very much for your support. And I'll continue to give shoutouts to people that sign up for my Patreon in support of the show along with a longtime supporter, John J. Thank you. And now on to tonight's story. Now some background information on Smith. Uh, he was born June 11, 1948, and was retired from the U.S. State Department. He was never married, and he lived alone. His brother described him as a retired security engineering officer. Smith claimed at trial that prior to the murders, he had been burglared at least half a dozen times over the preceding months. He had only reported one previous burglary to police, and investigators only found evidence of two previous burglaries, one which occurred in his detached garage, and one of which appeared he had no knowledge of when it was brought up by police. Among the items stolen were $4,000 in cash, his father's prisoner of war watch, coins from a collection, and a chainsaw. Smith began routinely wearing a holster with a loaded gun inside of his own home, as well as stashing bottles of water and granola bars in his basement. Smith installed a security system to, say, in his words, protect himself. Now, on November 22, 2012, Smith drove his vehicle down the road, parking it in front of a neighbor's home. About an hour later, Kiffer and Brady both broke into his home. Video surveillance captured the teens casing the property prior to the break-in. By his own account to the police, Smith had been visiting neighbors when he saw Kiffer, who he suspected was responsible originally for the burglaries, driving past his home. He made a comment that he had to, quote, needed to get ready for her, and went back to his home. Upon entering his house, Smith turned on the recording device that he owned. He removed light bulbs from the ceiling lights 
and positioned himself in a chair that was obscured from view. He heard the windows upstairs break, and Brady climbed in. This is all collaborated with captured audio that was played in the trial. Smith waited in silence for 12 minutes until Brady began to descend into the basement. At that point, without a warning, Smith shot Brady twice on the stairs, and once in the head after he fell to the bottom of the stairs. Smith then made taunting remarks to Brady's body, wrapped it up in a tarp, and dragged it into another room. He went upstairs. About 10 to 15 minutes later, he says, he ran back down into the basement, reloaded his weapon, and took up a previous position in the obscured chair. Minutes later, Kiffer entered the home and could be heard calling her cousin's name. As she made her way down the stairs, Smith shot her. Wounded, she fell down the stairs, and Smith can be heard on the recording sarcastically saying, Oh, I'm sorry about that. Followed by Kiffer saying, Oh my God, oh my God, very quickly. Smith shoots her again, multiple times in the torso. In the midst, she still continues to scream, Oh my God, and once next to her left eye. He repeatedly called her derogatory names, and then dragged her into another room, tossing her body on top of her cousins, and shot her one final time under the chin, murdering her. Audio and video of the evidence were recorded with Smith's security system. Now, I must warn you, you can search this material online, but out of respect to the victims, I would say not to. The investigation continued. The deaths were not immediately reported to the police. He actually waited till the next day to notify the police of the shootings, as he, quote, didn't want to ruin their holiday. Again, this took place on Thanksgiving. Morrison County Sheriff Mitchell Wetzel was acknowledged, he had acknowledged that Brady and Kiffer were there to burglar Smith's residence. Brady's sister claimed Brady stole drugs from her home on August 28th, a case that was still under investigation at the time of Brady's killing. Evidence recorded or sorry, evidence recovered from the car driven by Brady were linked to a burglary of a residence of a retired teacher the night before he and Kiffer were killed by Smith. Smith's statements to police described delivering a Hoops Mortel, an English fatal blow, to the heads of the teens after he had shot them on the stairs and they lay wounded on the basement floor. In his statement, Smith said that Kiffer had let out a short laugh after she fell down the stairs, if, saying as if, if you're trying to shoot somebody and they laugh at you, you go again. The audio tape did not record Kiffer laughing. Instead, the cries of, oh my god, were very clear and rapidly in fear. The police interview Smith acknowledged firing more shots than I needed to, and that he fired quote, a good, clean finishing shot into Kiffer's head. This brings up the Castle Doctrine debate, in which Minnesota state laws allow. Legal analysts have stated that the initial shootings 
most likely would have been justified under Minnesota's laws, but that the subsequent shots were not justified once any threat had been removed. Sheriff Wetzels went on to say, quote, The law doesn't permit you to execute somebody once the threat is gone. Hamlin University School of Law professor Joseph Olson also said, quote, I think the first shot is justified. After the person's no longer a threat because they're seriously wounded, the application to self-defense is over. In addition to his home surveillance system, Smith also recorded at least six hours of audio on a digital recorder in the basement of his residence. Now, prior to the break-ins, he's heard saying, in your left eye, and I realize I don't have an appointment but I would like to see one of the lawyers here. The prosecution noted that Kiffer was later shot in the left eye by Smith and alleged that the other statement was a rehearsal of what he was going to say after the shooting, an indication that he knew he was going to need an attorney. Following shootings, Smith made a number of statements, including, quote, I'm not a bleeding heart liberal. I felt like I was cleaning up a mess, not a spilled food, not like vomit, not even like, not even like diarrhea, the worst mess possible. And I was stuck with it, in some tiny little respect, I was doing my civic duty. The law enforcement system couldn't handle it. I had to do it. I had to do it. The law system couldn't handle her, and it fell into my lap, and she dropped her problem in my lap. And she threw her own problem in my face, and I had to clean it up. End quote. Smith's recorded statements, the evidence indicating that he had planned the shootings, along with the excessive number of shots fired, led to Smith being charged, originally, with second degree murder. Now, he was initially charged with the two counts of the second degree murder, however, in April 2013, he was indicted on two counts of first-degree murder. Bail was later set to $50,000, which he posted. Hamlin Law Professor Joseph Daly commented that the laws surrounding the case were divided amongst the Little Falls community. Quote, In some states, somebody breaks into your home, you're allowed to shoot them dead, period, said Daly. He pointed out to other states, such as Florida, which they have a stand-your-ground law, but Minnesota, for what it's known as a reasonable person doctrine. Quote, If a reasonable person would see if you are in fear of great bodily harm or death, that's our statute. That's what it comes down to, and what a reasonable person would see in that situation for Mr. Smith, said Daly, arguing that the summary execution is reasonable. After this quick message, we'll be right back. If this is your first time tuning in, I encourage you to subscribe to the show so you can hear all the other episodes, as well as what we have coming up in the next few weeks. The trial happened on April 21st, 2014, and Smith's trial, uh, jury trial commenced in the Morrison County. Smith was represented by attorneys Stephen Mesh. Meshbesher, my apologies, and Adam Johnson on April 29th, 2014, 
Smith was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder with premeditation, and on two counts of second-degree murder, after three hours of jury deliberations, he was immediately sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The audio recordings were named by the jurors as the biggest influence on their decision. Quote, That was the most damning piece of evidence in my mind, one of the 12 jurors said. The audio recording of the actual killings and the audio recording of Mr. Smith's interview immediately after his arrest pretty much convinced me that we were dealing with a deranged individual. Now, it wouldn't be the American justice system if there wasn't any appeals. So following his conviction and sentence to life imprisonment, Smith appealed to the Minnesota Supreme Court. On March 2016, the Minnesota Supreme Court affirmed Smith's conviction and sentence. In November 2018, Smith's attorneys filed a federal appeal, citing a brief closure of the trial to the public as grounds for Smith's conviction to be set aside, which, if granted, would necessitate a new trial. The federal district court denied relief, and the United States Court of Appeals in the Eighth Circuit affirmed it. On November 20, 2020, Smith's lawyers again filed a petition for right of suturia. My apologies for not pronouncing that correctly. Uh, which, again, was denied uh, by the United States Supreme Court on March 22, 2021. The right of uh, citria is a court process to seek judicial rev review for a decision of a lower court. So essentially, they thought they could get around asking the United States Supreme Court, which, again, it was denied. Smith is currently incarcerated at Oak Park Heights Prison. Now, the law actually states under Minnesota state law, reads, quote, reasonable force may be used upon or towards a person of another without another's consent when the following circumstances exist, or the actor reasonably believes them to be existing. When used by any person in lawful possession of real or personal property, in resisting unlawful interference of such property, unlawful interference with Mr. Smith's property was ended by Mr. Smith's initial shots, which disabled Brady and then Kiffer. These shots constituted reasonable force. The jury believed the action Smith undertook to then kill Brady and Kiffer after disabling them were not an act of reasonable force to resist unlawful interference. Another state statute states, the intentional taking of another's life is not authorized except when necessary in resisting or preventing an offense which the actor reasonably believes exposes the actor to or another to great bodily harm or death or preventing the commission of a felony in the actor's place of abode. Well, the jury found that the potential offense which exposed Smith to great bodily harm was ended when he disabled shots of Brady and Kiffer. The potential felonies uh, on Smith's abode were ended at that point as well. Further acts Smith committed to end Brady and Kiffer's lives were not necessary to prevent or re resist any other offenses committed. And according to, again, more state statutes, in criminal trials, the court shall decide questions of law, except in cases of criminal defamation, and the jury shall decide 
questions of fact. The jury's findings were based on the application of the existing laws to reflect the fact that any threat to Smith's person and property presented by Brady and Kiffer had been sufficiently neutralized by Smith's initial disabling shots. It's terrible to hear about the loss of young life. Summary execution style, there's no way to go. If you don't know what that is, that's where someone is killed immediately after doing a crime without any fair trial. And now as a bonus, we can talk about a little bit of the truth behind Thanksgiving. Now, much like Columbus Day, Thanksgiving is observed by some as a national day of mourning and the acknowledgement of the genocide and conquest of Native Americans by colonists. Thanksgiving has long carried a distinct resonance for Native Americans who have seen the holiday as an embellishment story of, quote, pilgrims and natives looking past their differences to break bread. Professor R.W. Jensen at the University of Texas in Austin is somewhat harsher, saying that, quote, one indication of moral progress in the United States would have been the replacement of Thanksgiving Day and its self-indulgent family feasting as a national day of atonement, accompanied by a self-reflective collective fasting. Some of the controversy regarding Thanksgiving has been used to justify the Christmas creep. It's the act of putting Christmas decorations up before Thanksgiving. Those who sympathize, sympathize with this view acknowledge it has a small minority view. Author and humanist uh, J. D. Roden, who does not celebrate Thanksgiving, noted, quote, If you put forth the interpretation, the touches of the dishonorable treatment of the native population that lived in what became the United States, then you're likely to be dismissed as some sort of crank. Funny enough, the autobiography of Mark Twain, which was first published in 1924, gives a satirical opinion of Mark Twain. He was saying, quote, Thanksgiving Day, a function which originated in New England two or three centuries ago, when those people recognized that they really had something to be thankful for, annually, not oftener, if they had succeeded in exterminating their neighbors, the Indians, during the previous 12 months, instead of getting executed by their neighbors, the Indians. Thanksgiving Day became a habit. For that reason, that the course of time, as the years drifted on, it was perceived that the exterminating had ceased to be mutual, and it was all about the white man's side, consequently, on the Lord's side. Hence, it was proper to thank the Lord for it and extend the usual compliments. Now, since 1970, the United American Indians of New England, a protest group led by Frank Wasuta James, accused of the United States and Europe settlers of fabricating the Thanksgiving story and of whitewashing a genocide and injustice against Native Americans. It has led a National Day of Mourning protest on Thanksgiving at Plymouth Rock in Plymouth, Massachusetts in the name of social equality and the honor of political prisoners. Some Native Americans hold un-Thanksgiving Day celebrations in which they mourn the deaths of their ancestors. They fast, dance, and pray. The tradition has taken place since 1975. Now, the perception of Thanksgiving among Native Americans is not, however, universally negative, and some do celebrate the holiday. Tim Geigo, founder of the Native American Journalists Association, 
sought to reconcile Thanksgiving with Native American fall harvest celebrations. He compares Thanksgiving to Wapea, a Thanksgiving celebration practiced by Native Americans of the Great Plains. He wrote in the Huffington Post, quote, The idea of a day of Thanksgiving has been part of the Native American landscape for centuries. The fact that is also a national holiday for all Americans blends in perfectly with Native American traditions. He also shares personal anecdotes of Native American families coming together to celebrate Thanksgiving. Members of the Oneida Indian Nation marched in 2010's Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade with a float called The True Spirit of Thanksgiving and have done so every year since. Now, Thanksgiving has been celebrated nationally on and off since 1789, with a proclamation by President George Washington after the request of Congress. President Thomas Jefferson chose not to observe the holiday, and its celebration was intermittent until President Abraham Lincoln, in 1863, proclaimed the national holiday of Thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelt in the heavens calling on American people to also, quote, with humble pensions, our national preservance and disobedience, fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation. Lincoln declared it for the last Thursday of November. On June 28, 1870, President Ulysses S. Grant signed it into law, the Holidays Act, which made Thanksgiving a yearly appointed federal holiday in Washington, D.C., Later on March, or sorry, January 6th, 1885, an act by Congress made Thanksgiving and other federal holidays a paid holiday for all federal workers throughout the United States. Under President Franklin D. Roosevelt, the date was moved to one week earlier, observed between 1939 and 1941 amid significant controversy. And then from 1942 onwards, Thanksgiving, by an act of Congress, received permanent observation date the fourth Thursday of November, no longer at the discretion of the president. According to historian James Baker, debates over any where the, quote, first Thanksgiving took place on modern American territory are a tempest in a bean pot. According to Jeremy Bang, uh, he opines that local boosters in Virginia, Florida, and Texas promote their own colonists, who, like many others getting off the boat, gave thanks to set foot on dry land again. According to Baker, the American holiday's true origin was that of New England's Calvinist Thanksgiving. Never coupled with the Sabbath meeting, the Puritan observations were special days set aside during the week for Thanksgiving and praise in response to God's providence. Politically, the 1619 codification and celebration of the annual Thanksgiving, according to the Berkeley 100th Charter in Virginia, prompted then-President John F. Kennedy to acknowledge the claims that both Massachusetts and Virginia to America's earliest celebrations. He issued Proclamation 3560 on November 5, 1963, saying, quote, Over three centuries ago, our forefathers in Virginia and in Massachusetts, far from home in a lonely wilderness, set aside the time of Thanksgiving. On the appointed day, they gave reverent thanks to their safety, for the health of their children, for the fertility of the fields, and for the love of which bound them together 
and for the faith which united them with their God. A lot of nice stories when you don't factor in the genocide, but it's a traditional holiday that does bring people together. So whatever you're doing this Thursday in November, I hope you have a safe and happy holiday. Enjoy your time with your family and your friends. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you very much for listening tonight and being part of the Mythical True Crime community, hosted by me, DJ. Subscribe to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get your weekly updates. And if you like what you hear, consider subscribing. Subscribing will directly support the show and the work that I'm doing. If you'd like to be a new supporter, consider clicking the link in the description box below. For less than a cup of coffee a month, you can help me continue to make great content for listeners everywhere. No commitment, cancel any time. This has been the Mythical True Crime Podcast. My name is DJ. Good night.